All right. Are we all ready? Now I got to remember what I say. <laughs> Hi everyone, uh, this is Natalie Egan. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and welcome to the HR Wonder Woman show with Wendy and Anne. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of HR Wonder Women. I am your host, Wendy, and with me as always is Anne. Hi Anne, how are you tonight? Hi, Wendy. I am doing well. So far, I haven't tripped over my words, so I'm waiting to hear when it's going to happen. Um, when it does, I think it's going to be spectacular. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. And we'll keep, be sure <laughs> to keep you. that in the show. We aren't going to cut it at all. Um, it, so I'm super excited because we have someone on the show tonight that you got to meet at the Sherm Diversity um, and Inclusion Conference last fall. And you said, we need to have her on. And I said, okay, let's bring her on. I'm excited. Um, I, and I'm always excited to learn from, from other folks. And I, I think this is going to be a great long conversation. So we'll keep our small talk extremely small. And please um, introduce our guest. And let's, let's kick off this awesome conversation. Terrific. Okay. I am super excited. As Wendy said, I got a chance to hear Natalie uh, share at the Sherm Diversity and Inclusion Conference last October, and I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since. Um, so let me just start with the introduction. Natalie Jane Egan is an openly transgender B2B software entrepreneur and a recognized thought leader living her life at the intersection of technology and diversity and inclusion. Natalie has over 20 years of experience driving digital change, developing high-performing teams, building complex products, and selling enterprise solutions. Today, she is the CEO and founder of Translator, where she and her team are on a mission to scale empathy and equality through technology. Prior to founding Translator in 2016 and prior to her transition, Natalie was CEO and founder of PeopleLinks, a venture capital-backed sales technology solution that was acquired in 2015. In addition to her entrepreneurial pursuits, Natalie has also worked in leadership positions at large public companies like LinkedIn, Autonomy, and Ecolab. Outside of work, Natalie is a parent, a runner, and a consummate activist for transgender rights and representation. Based in New York City, Natalie received her undergraduate degree from Cornell University, her MBA from the Villanova School of Business, and is currently writing her first book about her transition from a male to female CEO in corporate America and the business lessons learned along the way. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. I am super excited uh, for this conversation. Um, and I want to start with what is basically our first question always. And this is my fumbling part, guys. I can't find. <laughs> um, I apologize for that, too, because I'm even working on that, calling people guys. And that was something actually that I learned from you, Natalie, uh, last October and um, was then like horrified at how often I do it. And I'm working on that. Um, okay. So found the question. Um, so Natalie. <laughs> We know that intersectionality matters. It's the reason we do this podcast. We all have many ways in which we identify and different parts of our identity matter more in some spaces than others. When thinking about this conversation tonight, how do you identify and you've already shared your pronouns, which I think I forgot. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Oh, gosh. So, first of all, Wendy, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This is super exciting and, and it's a real privilege. So um, thank you for having me. And and thank you for the, the introduction and, and, you know, taking the time to talk about um, your identities and sharing that with us. And, you know, in terms of my identity and, and, and you know, the topic of intersectionality, um, all this is, is really uh, important to me. And I think especially with the topic of intersectionality, if you think about sort of that framework and, and the history of intersectionality, and it originally started... Uh, with Kimberly Crenshaw and sort of as a way or a framework to, um, you know, really explore the oppression of women of color within society in particular. So it's sort of the foundation of, of race and as, as, as at the base. And, you know, I identify as a, as a, as a white trans woman. Um, and I think that intersectionality has evolved as a construct for us to look at, you know, our entire identity in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, more than a white trans woman, um, able-bodied, et cetera, you know, I, I identify at the highest level as human, right? Um, and I identify as a parent. 
and I identify as a runner and an athlete. And I also identify as an entrepreneur. Um, and I also just happen to identify as transgender. And it's sort of just <laughs> of the puzzle. Um, it oftentimes comes out first. Um, and I think that that's kind of par for where we are uh, as a society, but it's just one piece of my identity. Um, and I'm very excited to, to be a part of this conversation today and, and explore all this, especially through an HR lens. So thank you. Yes. Well, and I think that's important that, you know, we're talking about it now um, to, to make it normal. And the more we talk about it, the more normal it becomes. I was thinking about, I was listening to um, Love It or Leave It this morning on my drive. And, um, and John Lovett made a comment about, uh, I think it was John said something like, you know, gay white male. And I was like, should, should we just start all saying, you know, straight white females? We just start throwing those in more and more and more so that we can stop eventually because it's as long as we, we put it out there, the more we put it, I think the more we put it out there, the less noticeable it will become. And we'll just hopefully stop caring. That's the goal, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think the idea is, I think we've moved beyond this time where we would say things like, I don't see race or I don't see color right. or, you know, um, you know, in HR, like we just, we, you know, there, there's this old sort of adage that, you know, we, we don't, um, oh, I can't remember actually how they said it specifically, but it was sort of like, you know, we just, it just sort of the way that we hire, we're just hiring for, you know, the best person for the job, but we're not really looking at the whole process. And I think, you know, when people say, I don't see color, um, you know, or I don't see race. I mean, that's, that's really quite a shame, right? Because people want to be seen and they want mm -hmm. to be heard. And I think that the problem is when we weren't talking about these things, it was shrouded and it wasn't talked about. And, and it leads to stigma, stigma. And, you know, there's an incredible stigma around the trans identity and experience. And it comes from, you know, the lack of information and resources and, you know, this sort of very dangerous tropes that came out of the early 80s that, you know, really propagated a lot of the education that we, you know, early education about what we got or what, who trans people were. Um, and, you know, now that we're, you know, we, we live in the age of the internet, you know, we're seeing this sort of uh, revolution, but, but we, the reality is we've always been around and, uh, and just nobody talked about it. And so mm -hmm. it does really create a very dangerous scenario to not talk about it. And I think, you know, long term, if we can, you know, put it all out there and we can all be ourselves, yes, I think it will return, you know, or not return to normal, but become the new normal. Yes. And, um, and, and that's why this, this conversation matters. It's why language matters. It's why intersectionality matters and all representation matters. All this stuff really matters if we want to make a difference. Otherwise, we're just going to get more of the same. And, you know, that what got us here is not going to get us where we need to go. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, that's why I, for me, it's a privilege to be able to do, have these conversations and because I know I'm going to get it wrong and um, I need to talk with people like you, Natalie, so that I can learn and get it right next time because that's who we want to be. Well, and I think, thank you for saying that. And, and it is a process and, um, and it's hard, um, especially with the, you know, the guys thing, right? Like that's just, we, we, we gender our language all the time and we don't even realize what we're saying. And, you know, I, I appreciate you very much acknowledging that earlier. Um, I was going to actually say something to you. If you <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's really important that we, you know, and just to bring the audience up to speed, um, whenever I do talks or, you know, especially panels with large groups of people on both sides, uh, the word guys gets thrown around a lot. Like you guys, what do you guys think of this? Or, and um, I always, I always declare those kind of uh, that, those conversations, a no guys zone. And <laughs> you know, very simply, we just buzz people when they say, you know, very gendered language, like you guys, or, you know, hey, can you hang out? Can you hang, hang with the big boys? You know, those all get a buzzer. Um, and so it's just a simple kind of fun way to just remind us. It's sort of a little interrupter that we can just put into our, our language to help us kind of go, oh, right, right, I forgot. And yeah. Just move on. You don't have to give a big apology. You just kind of move on. Yeah. I, I, and like you said, language matters. I, I have, um, 
my, I have two girls in Girl Scouts and when they are in their troop, um, I very purposely say, Hey ladies, when I'm trying to get their attention, um, one, because they don't hear that often. Um, so it gets their attention, (laughs) but it's very specific word of who I want them to be and who, who, who needs to pay attention. So. I, I really you have to be a little careful to be honest. I mean, it sounds a lot safer, but but you know, I think in general, if we can avoid calling large groups of people by any one label, um, you know, that's that has expectations built into it, it's um, it can be it can be helpful and liberating, right? I mean, words like team and folks and y'all, mm-hmm. I love y'all. Uh, yes. <laughs> But all of these things are, are good, um, you know, non-gendered um, ways of, of getting people's attention. But I know we have a lot more to the podcast. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> um, we could probably spend an hour on this alone, I think. Yeah. I, I think we could. And I feel yeah. like I want a buzzer for my, like, I want something yeah. to buzz me all the time. Because, it, I mean, it's true. When I caught myself earlier today, I, I um, hearing you say that in October was, was, very impactful and it is a struggle because I got 50 plus years using this language and like (laughs) figuring out how to how to change it is um yeah it's hard a slog yeah yeah Yeah. all right we're we're gonna move on (laughs) I was was about to start I was about to start to add something to that and I was like shut up Natalie shut up let's move on because again we could have a long conversation about this and, and maybe we'll Maybe we'll all be at a conference somewhere um, where we can sit down with um, some beer or wine or water or whatever it is you want to have in your glass and uh, and talk about it more. I think that would be great. That'd be awesome. So, Natalie, before you transitioned, you grew a large HR tech company related to the business side of HR. And since transitioning, you've used those same tech skills to focus on scaling empathy, empathy in business. Talk to us about that journey. That's fascinating. Yeah, so there's a lot to that. I mean, it, it has been quite a journey. And um, I, uh, as I said earlier, I do identify as an entrepreneur. I'm a serial entrepreneur, actually. Uh, I've been starting um, businesses and trying to help people, you know, in some form or fashion since I was about five years young. And um, but prior to Translator, which is my current uh, company, I started a business called People Inks, uh, and we were an HR tech sort of change management software solution that was designed to help show people how to use social media at scale um, based on, you know, their specific role inside of an organization. So think of it as sort of like a rules engine that, uh, you know, a large company could kind of program best practices and then it would guide you in real time what to do on social media based on, on these rules. So, you know, your pipeline, you know, your, your position inside of an organization, and, um, that was a great company. It took off like a rocket ship, um, and sort of fell just as quickly in a lot of ways. Um, but, uh, we were, we were one of the sort of social media darlings, uh, back in the day. And, um, you know, it was, it was not the exit or the, the kind of outcome that we were all looking for. Um, but it certainly taught me a lot about how to build, software that's designed to kind of change people's attitudes and behaviors over time. And that's really what we're doing today. So in a lot of ways, it's a very similar business model. It's, it's nearly identical in a lot of ways, but instead of teaching social media uh, at scale, we're teaching empathy at scale. So the sort of theory or thesis behind this is, um, you know, how do we, um, you know, spread empathy and equality at scale? So that whole idea of, of, of scaling empathy, um, because we are looking at this through an HR lens, how should HR professionals be thinking about building empathy in our organizations? Um, kind of like the how, the how behind it, the why behind it, the, the how it is possible, I think, behind it, because it, it, it doesn't, at first glance, it doesn't seem like something that you can scale, right? Because it's empathy is relational and it's telling stories and it's getting to know each other. And it's right, like you build empathy through those one-to-one 
conversations and relationships. So talk to us about how we can think about it, um, taking kind of that concept and, and scaling that so that empathy um, becomes part of our, like, integral into our organizational culture. Yeah, so I think um, traditionally empathy was something that was hired for, and, and, and people sort of thought that it was very hard, if not impossible, to teach. Um, and, and, and I think that that sort of has been just the way it was for, and the way it is for, a, you know, for a very, very long time. And I think companies can no longer afford to um, kind of look the other way when it comes to culture. Um, you know, they, it's, it's really more risk. Uh, there's more risk in doing nothing than there is, you know, like to get, to get active and involved. And the problem is, you know, culture is this traditionally been sort of this black hole, you know, it's, it's very hard to understand and measure and, and touch and feel. And, you know, there's that old saying that you can't, you can't improve something if you can't measure it. And so I think we're in this whole new era now where, you know, culture is really one of the last frontiers of digital transformation inside the enterprise. And I think we've seen digital transformation kind of take over every part of the business um, from sales and marketing to product development, and of course, HR. Um, and, and now we're starting to see it really, um, you know, uh, sort of productize or digitize in the space of, of culture. And uh, it's very exciting. Um, but it requires a shift in, in how, how the organization um, can, can, can kind of go about its business. And, and we're sort of at the beginning of that, that, that journey, right? Um, and it's, it's a crawl, walk, run for sure. So, you know, where we are today and where we are in six months, 12 months, you know, five years is going to look a lot different. Um, but companies, um, you know, they, they need to get, um, you know, woke, right? They need to, they need to become conscious of this. And I, I think that a lot of the, the empathy journey for the individual is very similar to the empathy journey for the organization. Um, and it starts with self-awareness. And I think that, you know, part of the reason traditional diversity and inclusion training and, and all kind of really, I mean, even more, even more so the compliance training sort of bounces, you know, it doesn't stick. Right, it's, it feels like a lecture, and and none of that, no diversity inclusion training will stick if people are, feel like they're being lectured, and they don't, especially if they don't understand their own identity first. And I think when you think about this as a journey, you know, a company has to look at itself and and have its own self awareness exercise to say, who are we? You know, what are we? What matters to us? And people are collectives. You know, they're they're large groups of people. And that's their biggest asset and also their biggest liability at the same time. And, you know, to be able to put some mechanisms in place to ensure that people are on a continuous sort of learning cycle of, 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 of empathy is, is really important. And, and empathy um, is as squishy as it sort of seems. There's actually a pretty solid framework for teaching empathy. That's, that's quite, you know, it's historically, um, you know, been sort of, accredited and, and been used for, for many, many years. And it's, it's called the three pillars of empathy. And the first pillar of empathy is self-awareness. And, and the second pillar of empathy is sort of context or history. So if you imagine like pillar one is learning about yourself, pillar two is now literally a history lesson of learning about other people, right? Other uh, diverse cultures. Um, and so now that you've answered, you know, kind of, or at least have a better, hopefully a better understanding of why and who you are, um, and, and then you kind of understand a little bit better why and who other people are, um, then the third pillar is interaction. And it's, it's sort of like batting cages and simulations and testing. And, and traditionally, it's a very linear learning experience. You know, you go pillar one, two, and then three, and then the training's over and you go back to the real world. And what we're doing is we're building a technology system that's designed to kind of keep that in a loop and keep people engaged all the time so that they're constantly learning about themselves, constantly learning about others, and then putting those things into action so that they can learn and grow. And believe me, it's not going to be perfect. In fact, it, there's going to be times when it's ugly. Um, 
but in the name of progress and the, in the spirit of, of, of openness and moving the culture, you know, we just have to be ready for those things. And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's best practices to get, to get ready for it, but this is, this is people, right? This is not, you know, a, a finance algorithm running in the background. <laughs> You know, this, these are people involved, so we have to bring humanity to this as well. Very cool. Uh, so, Natalie, you were recently featured as one of Rent the Runway's Women of the Future, and you talk about the importance of finding community and developing the self-confidence to change your life. It's one of the things that Anne really remembers when she heard you speak last year, that your story is inspiring to anyone who wants to make a change in their life. So how can people develop that confidence to do what makes them feel most truly themselves? And why is that important? Oh gosh. So um, <laughs> got deep real fast. Yeah. So in, in terms of like my background, you know, I, prior to my transition, I was a very sort of, um, uh, you know, typical bro, you know, like, I mean, I, I sort of, you know, talk about bro culture and brotopia and like all the toxic bro things that you can think of, like that was me. And, you know, I certainly didn't struggle with my confidence externally. Um, I mean, I think everybody thought of me as a very confident person. Um, you know, ironically on the inside, I was actually very, I didn't have a lot of confidence at all. Um, but certainly transitioning has been, um, you know, quite the journey for me in terms of trying to kind of like find my new self and, um, and do that really on the fly, right? So I'm, I'm now 42 years young. Uh, I started transitioning when I was 39 and I have three kids and a family and, you know, a, a, a professional career that's, you know, kind of embedded in a certain, you know, space. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts, um, and architecture to my identity. And, you know, I really had to kind of rebuild a lot of it on the fly. And, you know, I couldn't just hit pause and, and sort of go incubate and, and hibernate and become me. I had to do it in real time. And a big part of, of, of being a woman is being confident in, in who you are. And, um, and a big part of that is how you express yourself. And I actually think of, you know, when I think about gender and, and um, you know, gender constructs and, and, and ultimately kind of identity, I think a lot about what it means to express yourself. And I think of my identity as an expression more than anything else, right? I'm an athlete, I'm a parent, I'm an entrepreneur, I happen to be trans. You know, all of these things, you know, build up this, this expression of who I am every single day. And uh, a big part of your expression is, is your clothes and it's a palette, right? I mean, I, I think I was always, I've always been an artist. Um, and, you know, prior to transitioning, I could never use the medium, like the ultimate medium, right? Which is yourself. And so I was sort of forced to express myself through external, um, you know, canvases, if you will, or pottery or, you know, even business was an expression of, of, of who I was and what I am. But, um, you know, clothing has always been something I've, I've been particularly passionate about, but could never express myself with. And I, as I found myself, you know, transitioning as a woman, a professional woman in a tech industry dominated by men, um, that, you know, clothing is a big part of that. Um, and it's really quite challenging and, and expensive. And I've, <laughs> And there's a lot of time that goes into it, a lot of experimentation and things that I never had access to. You know, you wouldn't believe how much tribal knowledge is handed down in slumber parties, you know, <laughs> from, from when you're like, you know, a teenage girl through high school, you know, your experimentation, all those phases of, you know, figuring out your identity and figuring out who you are. Like, I didn't, I don't have time for that. Or I haven't had time for that. And so Rent the Runway has become this like really key part of, of like, my how I express myself, and and it's also very cost effective. Not to turn this into an hour, <laughs> but you know it's cost effective, it's efficient, um, and you know I just show up and I basically tell them like what I need, 
for the week and like I show up at the store and they've got 15 outfits waiting for me to rent and walk away with. And so I, um, I've become a big fan of Rent the Runway and I think that kind of caught their attention at some point. Um, and I'm a pretty regular in the store, but, um, you know, it's, it's confidence is, is, is key to us being our authentic selves and it can take a while to find that. And, you know, and, and, and it, it's a process, right? It's, it's not like, Hey, you just find it one day and there it is. Like, it's just, it's kind of, um, you know, it's squishy and it's, and it, and it takes a while to, to really nail it. And I think I'm just starting to do that now. But in terms of the second part of your question, um, you know, in terms of giving people the confidence to, to um, you know, really be themselves, um, everybody's different. Every, every person, you know, oftentimes the stories are very similar, but the people are, are different, um, especially, it's especially to, in the trans community. Um, it's actually really alarming to me how similar the stories are. Um, it's the same pattern over and over and over again. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, whether it's our gender or our career or our, the relationships we're in, I mean, you know, we all kind of live in these prisons of other people's expectations. And, you know, for some of us, it's the moment that we're born, right? Like that moment when they hold the baby up and they say, oh, it's a boy or it's a girl. And then, and then they just shower that child with expectations of, of masculinity or femininity, the, the name and colors and toys and all these expectations. And the same thing is true for anyone that's, you know, you know, their father and their father's father and their father's father's father was a lawyer, or, you know, you're in a situation with a prearranged marriage. Like these things can be really um, restricting uh, of us in terms of our identity and our, and our authentic selves and, and tragically. So, I mean, it's, it's really quite devastating. And um, I, you know, was never conscious of any of this until I transitioned. And, and even once I transitioned, um, it took me a while. And I, I still, you know, I'm, I'm still always on this journey. I, I will be for the rest of my life uh, of becoming more woke and conscious. But um, I started sharing my story publicly about two and a half years ago, um, you know, kind of analog and one-to-one -one at first and then kind of smaller groups of people. And then I started writing about it and blogging. And then eventually I got a pretty big uh, opportunity to speak on stage. It's still probably one of my biggest um, stages to date. And it was my first stage, uh, my first time on stage as me, as Natalie. And there was probably 500 people in the audience. And I think there was like almost like 350,000 people or something ridiculous like streaming online. Um, so almost like a, you know, more than a, a third, like, you know, more than a quarter million people um, online. And I shared my story and, um, and I guess I expected people to be, I don't, I don't want to say I expected people to be grateful because that sounds very strange. <laughs> I expected, you know, the kind of normal things that you would experience when you get off stage doing something like that. Um, and I, you know, and a lot of people were very grateful. They were, you know, they, you know, it was hugs and, 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 and tears and, um, but what I didn't expect and, and really the greatest gift of all is that by me sharing my story with people, people started sharing their stories with me and, and that I was not expecting. Right. And, and people started writing me letters and, and, and scheduling meetings with me and taking me out to lunch and, you know, and sitting down with me and telling me privately one-on-one -on -one, these incredible stories of, of their transitions, but rarely transitions of their gender. It was stories of transitioning out of uh, abusive relationships and, you know, stories transitioning out of dead-end jobs or, or jobs that they never wanted to be in in the first place. And, um, and that really got me. I mean, that's, that's when that's when my empathy journey started. I mean, I talk about, you know, my journey to becoming Natalie, you know, really was my journey to empathy. And prior to transitioning, I honestly, as funny as anyone may think this sounds online, and I actually found it to be pretty common because a lot of people come up to me afterwards and they're like, I didn't know that either. Um, <laughs> I would confuse the word sympathy with empathy. Mm. And, you know, so I didn't even know what it really meant 
And I just sort of felt bad for people, but I didn't know what it was like to actually walk in their shoes or feel what they feel. And, and the gift was when people started sharing their stories with me and I could feel what they felt. And one person, I know this is a little long story, but one person in particular wrote me a very long, probably three page letter uh, on Facebook as a private direct message saying that them seeing my, hearing my story gave them the courage to change jobs. And, you know, they had been an auto mechanic in a family run auto business their whole life. You know, their two older brothers and their dad and their mom all worked in the, the mechanic business, the auto business. And um, they wrote me and said that they put in their notice and said that, you know, they're, they have enrolled in massage therapy school and that's their gift. And that's what they were always supposed to do. And they said to me, if you have the courage to change genders, I can certainly have the courage to change jobs. And I broke down crying. I mean, I had never, I mean, to be honest, actually the first time I read it, it didn't affect me that much. Um, I had to reread it and really let it sink in for me to go, oh my gosh, this person has really suffered the exact same way I have. It just, they weren't suffering with their, ger their gender. They were suffering because of these other expectations that were put onto them. So I think that's, that's really important. And I know that's a long answer, but, um, <laughs> but that's kind of the journey. Yeah, no, I, I really, I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, I, I was thinking how we were talking, we started kind of at the beginning of this conversation talking about um, it, how like labels and identity are important, but it would be nice to get to a point where they're just a fact, but not quite so weighted. And mm -hmm. I think that when you share your story and people hear that story and they can identify and say, okay, it wasn't my gender that I needed to change, but it was this other thing that was really crushing me that I needed to change. It was these other expectations that society or my family or whatever it was were putting on me. I think when we start building that kind of empathy, like, yeah, you, you grew your empathy and that's amazing. When other people can also start growing their empathy, then it, it, it ceases the othering of people who are trans yeah. so that it becomes a fact about you, but not this weighted fact about you. Right. And then, then yeah. you are a runner and an entrepreneur and a woman who happens to be trans, right? Instead of feeling like it's always leading with, I'm a trans woman who happens to be a runner and an entrepreneur, right? Like yeah. we flip that by building that empathy that people can say, oh, that is, that's one journey. We've all got like places where we can identify right. with that. And exactly. To your point earlier, I mean, I, I am, I, my, my outlook or my, I guess my, my sort of thought process around like labels and uh, in particular stereotypes has changed dramatically. I mean, I think, I think stereotypes in general, I've always kind of considered they you know, are kind of bad, but like labels are, are, I, were kind of good. And, and now I've really shifted quite a bit. I mean, I, I get labels. I think they're valuable for like inanimate objects, um, you know, like a rock, mm -hmm. you know, like you could put a rock in a drawer, label it a rock and like the rock's never going to talk back to you. And the rock is never going to say like, but I'm more than a rock. And, and so I get the logic of it, um, but it doesn't apply well to people. And, and I think that's where we need to, you know, there needs to be like a little asterisk or some sort of uh, caveat that when we're talking about people, we're not talking about inanimate objects. I mean, we're talking about real people that have feelings and, and are multidimensional. And, you know, we don't have the right to put upon them any of our own expectations based on labels that we are taught from some other, you know, cultural inheritance of, of, of that knowledge. So uh, I agree with you on that. Yeah. And um, to kind of follow up on that, um, so we don't expect you to talk for all trans people. <laughs> um, but you've, but you, you are very open about being a trans woman. So thinking, going back to that HR lens that we were talking about as what kinds of things would you like for HR professionals to know um, 
that you think it would be helpful for HR professionals to know when interacting with employees and colleagues, and then also the kind of influence that we can have on the culture of our organizations, thinking specifically how we can be um, inclusive and all the other great words we have for welcoming people from all backgrounds. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a great question. And, um, and I actually, you know, in terms of my privilege and my responsibility, I think that's one of my big, you know, um, I don't want to say it's like a calling, but it's, it's a big part of who I am that I, you know, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of HR professionals and, 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 and businesses in general. Um, and, and I talk a lot about how they can help the trans community and, um, I think, you know, first and foremost, you kind of really have to look at the numbers. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of people immediately don't even realize statistically, like how, what we're talking about here. Uh, I think, you know, the, 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 the old, you know, and I, I say old, like, you know, it's the old number. I think from 2003, the Williams Institute out of UCLA put together a study. Um, it was the most formal study at the time. And it was a very limited and a very flawed study, but um, ultimately kind of gave us a number that, that generally that people accepted is like, okay, as a baseline, 1% of the population is transgender, right? So one out of every 100. And that number, even though it, it seems small, is actually still quite big. Like if you have one out of every 100, that's a pretty big piece of the population. Um, especially when you start to multiply it by, you know, the ecosystem of people around that, right? So, um, and, 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 and we'll talk more about that in a second. But realistically, uh, another report, uh, realistically, we're talking about 3 to 4% of the population. That's a report that came out just about a year and a half ago as part of the National Trans Center for Equality. Um, they did one of the largest, uh, most comprehensive studies to date. Um, that original study was only talking to adults and it was only talking, uh, only uh, surveying tr out adults. So out, tra like, so if you'd given me that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I would have said no, because I didn't even know what I was at the time. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, but um, colleges and universities are reporting about seven to 8% of their incoming freshman class are reporting somewhere on the, gender non-binary spectrum, which doesn't necessarily mean they're transitioning like male to female, but they're, they're observing this behavior of, of uh, not exactly identifying as a boy or as a girl or, you know, and, 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 you know, there's all this like sort of space in between. And that is a alarmingly huge number, right? So if we're talking about, you know, let's just call it 5% of your incoming workforce is somewhere on that spectrum, you know, you really need to shift, you know, your everything, right? Your hiring models, your recruiting questions, your, you know, everything on the front end, all that sort of tactical stuff. But we really need to th start thinking strategically, what does this mean for our business? What does this mean for, you know, for banks? The question that, that they're asking is, what does this mean for the future of wealth? Right? And if you start to think about that, in the context of the long game of your business, you know, this is a really significant um, change in your business, especially healthcare. There's all kinds of businesses that are based on like this very binary concept of male and female, um, including product lines and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, if we're, if there's some change there, it can, there can be a lot of upside. There can also be, um, you know, a fair amount of risk in the near term. Um, but I think for the companies that have figured this out and are, are thinking beyond kind of just, hey, I mean, the, the average, this is shifting, thankfully, but, you know, the number of people that are like, and, eh, you know, we're not that interested because we don't have any trans employees. Like, that kind of conversation is fading pretty quick because people are realizing, shit, you know, if we have 100 employees, statistically, we probably have three to four that are repressed. And if you have, let's just say you have three to four that are out, let's just say hypothetically they are, then you have to think about the ecosystem around them, their children, their spouses, that your vendors, your suppliers, the customers, like you potentially have thousands of trans identities surrounding your business, you know, very quickly before you even realize it. And so your messaging, you know, we kind of briefly touched earlier, I think like language matters. 
And so if you're looking to attract and retain the very best talent, you know, even if the individual you're recruiting isn't trans, chances are they went to college with trans kids. And they want to be in an environment that's just as accepting of, of their identity as all their friends. So it requires a pretty big shift. Um, and I think the, the, the major call to action is to get educated, right? I mean, this is, this is not no longer a passive, like, hey, we'll wait until somebody transitions here kind of thing. You know, you need to get ahead of this. And, and I think what's most uh, amazing is when you see organizations kind of really putting that language out there to show that their current employees that this is okay. Like this is, you know, we are gonna accept you for whoever you are and, um, and, and seeing companies do things like that, you know, bringing in trans speakers, um, you know, celebrating trans awareness, um, you know, day and, and, and transgender day of visibility and remembrance, all these things, you know, mean a lot, again, to, to the mom whose daughter is trans. Right. You know, and by the way, like those same employees are going to be making like long term career decisions about health benefits for their family based on which companies are offering transition related insurances. So, you know, this is really deep stuff. And there's a there's a whole downside, like a whole like liability kind of step side to it. But there's a ton of upside as well. And, um, you know, trans people are are you know, from a customer perspective and an employee perspective are ready to be loyal. Like they're waiting for companies to say like, like, I mean, like Salesforce, like try and get a trans employee to leave Salesforce. Like they will not because they believe that that's their safe place. And it is as a formal Salesforce partner, a form, former Salesforce partner, a current Salesforce partner. Um, it's incredible what they've done there. And so, you know, there's a whole side of retention and um, and engagement and loyalty that you can tap into. Um, but at the same time, like the 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 employees themselves are, you know, and, and, and sorry, not just the employees themselves, but it's the sort of again the ecosystem around them are looking for those opportunities to, you know, like my my parents will only go to Target now, right? Mm. I mean, it sounds sort of simple, but like you know, it's like that they believe in what that company has done. And they, you know, it's not a lot of you, they, they liked Target before, but they love them even more now. Right. It's just because of that sort of ecosystem around them, around me that, that just has that impact. I think the smartest companies are, are tapping into that. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> and, some, and some people will leave, you know? And some people will, yeah. Like, it's amazing to me. I actually work with, with some banks on this type of, 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 of conversation. And they literally, you know, um, the, you know, they'll have customers call them and say, I saw this poster you had hanging in the retail branch of, you know, uh, you know, some sort of LGBT kind of thing. And I, you know, I'm very concerned about that. And I don't want to be a part of this bank that, you know, is promoting this lifestyle. And literally the chief diversity officer of these banks will, will, will write them letters back and say, here's the name of four of our competitors. Go. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, the, the world is changing, right? And I think there was a time when the risk of who you would lose was greater than the risk, than like, the plus of who you're going to attract, but that's, that's flipped. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, and I think that um, smart businesses see that like, yeah, people may want to walk away, but a lot more people are going to be like your parents and yeah. say, Oh, wait a minute. This is my store now. Yeah. This is my bank. Yeah. I mean, it's really pretty amazing. Um, and, and, you know, people are going to walk away and that's fine. But I think, you know, if your top sales performer is, you know, racist and not inclusive, like, you know, you got, you got so many problems there. Yeah. Yes. You got other, you yeah. got other problems to worry about. <laughs> you can't, then you're not, you're, yeah. And if you're, if you're keeping someone because they are a quote unquote top performer, but they bring all of that problematic behavior, um, then you're making a bad business decision. Well, and they're also probably not realistically a top performer in right. right? I mean, yeah. I think they, when that used to be something, 
but now we know everything. I mean, we, everything's so measurable. Like you can really tell. Yeah. Yeah. You can. Well, Natalie, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of our show, the half hour question connection. Um, just like on the, uh, the quote regular HR social hour. Um, but we put a little female twist on it because we are trying to, uh, I mean, our, uh, lift up female voices. So, but the first thing that is so important to us at uh, the social hour and HR wonder women is networking and meeting people. So how has networking helped your career and what's been really effective for you, um, to, for successful networking? So, um, networking has taken on a new meaning for me in my transition. Um, I think it used to really be about getting leads. Um, and now it's really about, you know, building my community and my, um, my, the sort of structures that I need to, 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 you know, become the best version of myself and, and help other people do so as well. And, you know, it's really a very collaborative concept as opposed to, you know, some sort of like game of survival and, and kind of winning. Um, so it's really quite, it's changed quite a bit. And, and you know, for me as, as a trans woman, you know, transitioning in the middle of my career, um, you know, at a very critical point in my career, um, women in particular, you know, cis women, straight cis women, allies, um, has been an incredible resource for me in, in terms of making this pivot. Um, and I do oftentimes refer to it as a pivot. Um, it's funny, I, I came out to the board of directors at my previous company, I had this whole long speech about the pivot and how pivots are about survival. Um, and this is my pivot to, to, to survive the next 40 years. Um, but, but networking has, has been you know, critical in terms of you know, me becoming me and um, there's just been this, some, some women in my life early in, in this transition that just unquestionably, you know, or didn't even question taking me under their wing and, and helping me um, become the best version of me. And at the beginning, I didn't even understand it. I was like, Why, what, what are they going to get out of this? I can't give them anything. Like, I was always in that conversation. Like, why are they helping me? Because I can do nothing for them. And, and that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned right at the beginning. It's like, that's not what this is about. You know, like then traditionally in the sort of male dominated networking world, you would only network with somebody who, you know, could clearly help you and you could help them. That was kind of like the symbiotic relationship. And um, I found it to be much different um, and much more fulfilling. And, you know, not that it's right or wrong, but it's just what I need. And um, so uh, what's been effective for me in networking, um, I, I go to a lot of events. Um, specifically for the LGBTQIA um, sort of communities. Um, and that's why I'm a member of NGLCC, which is the National uh, LGBT Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I'm a member of Start Out, which is a networking group specifically on, on queer uh, entrepreneurs in tech, or for queer entrepreneurs in tech. And then I'm also a member of Out in Tech, which is for anyone that's sort of LGBT in the space. And those events have been game changing for me in every single way. Um, I mean, the, the, the amount of opportunities that have come out of that um, from a professional perspective, like lead generation, whether it's customers or investors or uh, employees, like potential um, you know, associates to work with me, it's been invaluable. But more than that, it's been the camaraderie and the, the, the kind of relationships that have been being developed. Um, it's very interesting now that I can finally be me. And it gets definitely into the space that I'm in. But um, there's no, you know, there, there's, there's literally no line between my professional world and my, and my personal world. And I used to say that and I used to think that, but it's now, it's now it's actually true. And so... It's really interesting to try and navigate these relationships, though. When you when you really are very good friends with them, you almost prefer to be friends with them. But you also like they're also a really big customer. <laughs> like it's like how do I deal with this? Like am I am I going out to dinner with you tonight as friends or as as you know uh, customer? And 
you know, professional relationship. And it really is interesting because you can't have both. You just have to have the right tools and language to kind of navigate it. Yeah. I actually just sent somebody an email today and said, I need your advice. So um, I think you need to give me like, quote me a fee as a consultant, because I don't think that like, this is a friend conversation, right? Because I need more than that from you today. Um, Tell us which women you read or follow for professional insights. Okay. Um, So I loved it when you, when you asked this. So I, um, I'm again, I'm, I'm new to all this, right? So I'm only, you know, I've only been out as for about three years. And prior to my transition, I had almost nothing to do with, you know, um, with, I mean, for, for lack of a better way of saying it, like women in business. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't know any, I mean, I knew Cheryl Sandberg maybe, you know, and that was kind of like, that's all I knew. And, and to be honest, I actually didn't like a lot of, of, of powerful women. Like they were, they were, um, you know, anyone that was sort of quote unquote alpha, uh, an alpha, mm-hmm. man, like I would butt heads with it. And um, but now, you know, that's completely shifted. And I realized that that, that sort of tension was actually a lot of jealousy. Um, mm. and, and I, again, I would have never figured that out at the time. Uh, but in terms of like, you know, who do I follow and read these days? Um, so one of my favorite things that just keeps me up to date on, on everything is, a, is, a, is, a, is an email newsletter that I read called The Broadsheet. Um, so I don't know if you all know that, um, but it's produced by uh, Fortune Magazine. And you can just subscribe to it. They give you the daily broadsheet. And actually, I think the topic this morning, I think this, the subject heading was something about alpha. There's a book out called um, Alpha Women. And, um, and so, you know, I like, to, I like to stay up on that. Um, I, uh, I, I love, um, you know, anyone that's been involved in these movements, um, you know, the, these incredible um, women's movements. Um, so all of the, the, the tech women, women in tech, all the women in VCs that are doing that. Um, you know, in particular, uh, Whitney Wolf is like one of my absolute favorites, CEO of Bumble, uh, which I'm a little biased on, but I was a huge fan before uh, we got involved with them. Um, same with Serena Williams, um, you know, huge fan forever, but, um, you know, now become involved professionally as well. Um, but, you know, across the spectrum there, I, I love, um, uh, oh, I, oh gosh, what's your name? Um, you could edit out this part. <laughs> uh, oh my God, this is so bad. Hey, you could, you could also what's her name with the people? to add to the show notes. Yeah. Um, she was, she's the CEO of the Girl Scouts now, but I'm completely scared. Oh, Sylvia. Sylvia. Um, us, us, Sylvia. It starts with an M, doesn't it? Uh, no. Uh, all right, here we go. Just, I obviously don't, it's like you can see her as Acevedo, Acevedo, that's what it is. Um, so Sylvia Acevedo, um, I saw her speak and then I've now been on a panel with her twice. Um, and she's just incredible. Um, awesome. but as you know, a, a Latin American, you know, woman in the early days of, of engineering at IBM, she was like one of the first you know, coders there. And, and anyone that's been in that sort of like, um, I'm, I'm the only one conversation. Like mm-hmm. another, another person who's on, the, on this list, like, it's just now that I'm like tapping back into it. So Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox. I mean, talk about being otherized your whole life. Like all of these people I have a deep identity kind of relationship with. Um, and so I, they're just role models for me. And I, um, and I do love them. I actually, and I have a couple personal friends, um, Kelly Khalil, um, who is one of the original uh, women that really took me under her wing, uh, who's uh, the CEO of Loverly, which is a wedding planning app. Um, she's become an incredible. I mean, she's she's my she's my she's now on the board of directors for for Translator, and I just you know I really look up to her. You know, and she's a peer and she's a friend, but I, I really follow her. I look to her uh, in ways that I just, it's just really special. Awesome. Um, favorite movie that features a strong female cast? Um, so I, um, 
I love strong women, right? Just it almost like, and I, and I think that that's like one of the, the new revolutions. I feel like it's like, I just feel like strong, really strong women are everywhere. And I think that that's really one of the most beautiful things that I think you can see is, uh, is, is a woman who's confident and strong and believes in herself. Um, so I really love movies like that. I think all these new movies that are coming out, um, you know, focused on women and women's stories are really, really important. Um, but I think um, movies lately that have really moved me, um, are, you know, Wonder Woman. I mean, I, my whole life I, I looked up to, you know, she, she was my superhero that I really wanted to identify with and I never could. Um, and so, you know, that was really a big one for me. Um, and I love, I love how women are taking over a lot of these shows. I, I don't know if, if you're, um, I don't know how much of a spoiler, well, it's not really a spoiler, but I feel like Game of Thrones has become this like incredible, like cast of women that are really, you know, really the boss in a lot of ways. And I don't know if you all watched last night, but like, I mean, it's like Arya Stark is like, I mean, that's, that's who I, I mean, the moment I, I saw her, what was now 10 years ago, I was like, that would be me if I was, if I could have been me, like I identified with her and now watching her, you know, basically slay the, you know, the, the, whatever he's called, the, the, the winter king, whatever the hell he's called. Um, I mean, I don't even pay that much attention to the, uh, the night king, whatever. Um, you know, that's just, that didn't happen before. You didn't see women in character roles like that. And I think that the work that Gina Davis is doing in particular mm -hmm. in terms of really changing that um, dynamic in movies and medias is, is, is so important to creating representation so that this becomes more normal, you know? Uh, I think growing up, I, I didn't see strong female casts. You know, I had sort of role models. I always... I always really looked up to Natalie Portman. Um, it's part of probably one of the reasons I have the name Natalie, to be honest. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of really strong women out there that I love. Awesome. How about favorite female musician or band? Yeah, so that one is pretty easy for me. I uh, Katy Perry. <laughs> I just okay. I just can't help it. I mean, I I've sort of been a Katy Perry fan my whole life, um, and I see it was a secret for a long time. Like I, I didn't let anyone know that I really loved Katy Perry. Uh, but now, I mean, I just, now I can put it out there. Right. I mean, I, I, I think she's amazing. Um, and, uh, and that, yeah, that's definitely my favorite uh, female musician. How about a uh, favorite female protagonist in a book or favorite female fictional character? Yeah, I, mean, I think after last night, it's definitely Arya Stark. Uh, <laughs> do you all watch Game of Thrones? I do so, not. Yeah, I don't either, but I will tell you what, I, I was telling somebody at work today, like, even not watching it, just watching Twitter last night, I could tell that that episode was just <laughs> on fire. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, just based on last night, Arya Stark. I mean, it just, it just was so empowering for me to watch that last night. I was like, oh my God. And she actually had a very controversial sex scene last week. All right. And she's, she's 21 now, I think, or 22 now in real life. Um, but when she started on the show, she was only 10 or 11. And there's all this outrage about this sex scene. And I'm like, you go girl. Like, I mean, I just think there's so much negative stigma around our bodies and, and, all and it's and it's because it's not talked about it's not you know it's not something that we you know we shame people and and there's all this sort of you know hypocrisy hypocrisy in how we shame people but like i body shaming and is i mean i i used to subscribe to that and now i mean i'm so body positive and um, I just love the fact that, you know, she has the confidence to get on that, onto that, onto camera and, um, and be herself. It's very real. Like, like that's part of the problem is like when we shame things or hide things that are real, that's what bothers me. Sex is real. Like, why can't we put it out there? Women grow up. Why can't we put it out there? <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and it's, 
it's it's really interesting to think about and study. But I was really excited for her and and for all women. You know, even for the women that aren't excited about that, I'm like, we need more diversity. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh. So, final question: What do you like to do outside of work? You've already said that you're a runner, so. As I said, you, you might it might have already been a spoiler, but yeah, it's a little bit of a spoiler. I mean, I, I wish I had more time to do stuff outside of work, um, and I don't, unfortunately. So I find that most of my time is spent running, um, and um, and I think that'll come. But as I mentioned earlier, my life and my work are so highly you know correlated and tied together that it's kind of like. I feel like I'm always working. Even when I'm having, when I go to an event or do something fun, like I'm working. Um, oftentimes the people that I'm around are, are you know, potential investors, they're current customers, they're, um, you know, either employees or, you know, somehow connected to my space. Very rarely, and I wish, I guess, I, I wish I had more friends that had nothing to do with <laughs> either technology or, you know, trans the trans identity or the trans experience um but i feel like i'm kind of surrounded by people in tech or they're trans and, and that's just my conversations are constant but uh, i do love to run i feel like running is the only time that um because i work so much and i, I work 24 7 I, i'd argue that I'm, I'm working all the time because like my brain is constantly running models and asking questions like what if what if what if like, i'm always doing these what if models um, and the only time that that stops, you know, you could say when I'm sleeping, but I might argue that I'm still doing it, um, is when I'm running. And so it's, I sort of enter this very Zen-like mode when I run. And while I'm still thinking, th thoughts come into my brain. They don't stick. They don't stick and manifest. And uh, when I'm running, they sort of come and then they go. And, and, and it's much more of like a meditation kind of Zen-like moment where you sort of observe the thought, but you don't let it, you know, mm -hmm. have you. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why running has become such an important part of my life is because it's, it's this outlet for me to, to sort of shut down my brain. Uh, but outside of running, um, you know, I love spending time with my kids, of course. Um, and, and I love helping people. Um, you know, typically I'm, I feel like I'm helping people um, with diversity and inclusion issues a lot, but um, so it brings me back to work pretty quickly. Um, but I, I, love, I would love to spend more time on a beach. Um, <laughs> like literally, absolutely. If I could, I would love to do nothing for fun. That would be nice. Yes, <laughs> that would be awesome. Like what do you do for fun? I do nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Oh, really I do far. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, Natalie, you have survived the show. Thank you so, so much for being here tonight. This is your opportunity to um, tell our listeners um, how they can find you online so that they can learn more and, uh, and connect with you. Sure. Um, so my, uh, so personally, you can find me almost on any social media platform. It's just Natalie J. Egan. So it's all one word, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, and then the letter J, and then my last name, which is Egan, E-G-A-M. So just at Natalie J. Egan, you can find me on Instagram uh, and other networks, mostly Instagram. That's where I'm, that's, that's kind of my jam. Uh, <laughs> so find me there. Uh, online, uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Translator and our business, which, by the way, I don't even know if I mentioned that, but we built diversity inclusion software for corporations, schools, and nonprofits. Um, so, so definitely check us out on the World Wide Web at um, translator.company. So it's www.translator.company, not .com. It's .company. Um, but you can find us on, on, the, on the internet at translator.company. We'd love to hear from you. Um, there's all kinds of ways that I'm sure we can collaborate um, to help you all. Um, move the needle in terms of creating a more authentic and engaged and diverse organizations. So, so thank you awesome. so much for having me. Wendy. Yeah. Yes. We'll put that all in the show notes. Um, and how can people find you? 
Uh, I'm just going to say Twitter. It's at Ann Tomk, A-N-N-E-T-O-M-K. Um, I guess I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook, uh, not so much on Instagram. Um, <laughs> there, I'm, I'm on Instagram to see pictures of the grandbabies, and that's pretty much it. Um, no? Yeah, I'm thinking that's about yeah. it these days. Yeah. My, All right. My, we'll find you my on Twitter. Might blog again someday. <laughs> For me, find me on Twitter, Wendell93. Y'all know that. Find me there. Join us the fourth Sunday of each month for the HR Social Hour half uh, or HR Social Hour Twitter chat, and a special shout out tonight for uh, to Skills for all our help with helping wonderful shows. Thank you, thank you so much, always, and thank you for joining me. And for HR Social Hour and HR Wonder Women, this is Wendy Daly. Now go tell your story.